Hello and welcome to the Big Feels Club podcast. Thank you for joining me, Gareth Edwards. The topic we're going to talk about today is psych drugs. <laughs> We've called this episode How to Have More Honest Conversations About Medication. Um, alternate title, Let's Talk About Meds, Baby. <laughs> For all those who grew up in the early 90s. Um, all right. <clears throat> so I wanted to start here with a little story. So this is a story from my partner, Honor Eastley, who's also the co-founder of the Big Feels Club that we run together. I want to share something she was putting in her witness statement to the Royal Commission into Mental Health here in Vic. Something she's said a few times in different forums, so I can share it here, which is when she was prescribed psych drugs when the, the first time she was having, you know, one of her first big breakdowns. She was told by one of the mental health professionals that the drugs work for about 85% of people. Um, so you should be fine. And there's this, there's this small group of treatment resistant people. Uh, and so when it turned out that she was in that supposedly small group, that was a really devastating uh, thing because, you know, she had that thought I imagine many of us have had, which is, oh, I might just be uniquely fucked up. <laughs> Turns out that 85% number is pulled out of thin air. Uh, in fact, finding that the drugs don't work or don't always work or don't work in the simple way they're supposed to is actually a really common experience many listeners will have. So I was just curious to start with, Gareth, do you, do you remember what you were told in the early days of being prescribed drugs? Uh, I wasn't told. That was that was the that was the whole um, point of mine. I've got this lovely little thing. I'll maybe dig it out if I can remember where it is. Where I was, I went to the doctors and I just opened up with like, I just feel like I can't carry on anymore. And before I'd even finished the anymore, he'd swiveled in his chair and was writing his script. Oh wow! And uh, you know, he handed it over. He said, "Take these for two weeks, and then you know, go see go see your own doctor." I was at uni at the time, so I was back at the family doctors. And then I can remember walking from the GPs to the chemist next door, and I'm like, if it's Prozac, I'm going to kill myself. Because if it's Prozac, I'm depressed, and if I'm depressed, then I'm just, I've failed, you know? And anyway, so I get there, and chemists are still the only one of two places that give you things in an unmarked paper bag. Yeah. And we all know what the other one is, so it just speaks to how much shame (laughs) is involved in medication. (laughs) I remember opening the worst Christmas present you know, of my life, you know, I'm wrapping it on the, on the walk away from the chemist. And I was like, yeah, if it's Prozac, that's it. And I peeled away the layer and it went F, L. And I'm like, well, there's no F in Prozac. There's no L in Prozac. Oh, there's no boy. U in Prozac. It yeah. was fluoxetine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but by that point, I'd had a little ray of hope, you know? So I had no idea what he was prescribing me. I didn't know it was antidepressants. Mm. I figured it would be something like that. And Prozac Nation had just recently come out. So that was kind of all the buzz. So yeah, there was no... Like, I was definitely like, you know, doctor knows best. Here's, you've said this thing, and then here's your thing. And off you go. Good God. Mm. I, my first experience was, well, first of all, I want to say this. I want, <laughs> I want to say I, I, I have found in general, not just from my own experience, but others relaying them to me, that the whole psych drugs conversation, if it happens yeah. <laughs> with, your, with your clinicians, it's such a curious mix of medical science and total crapshoot. <laughs> so on the one hand, it's like they'll give you, and so I'll tell you, I'll tell you about my experience. You know, the first, first psychiatrist I saw gave me this whole spiel and theory about switches getting stuck in my brain and how the antidepressants would, would 
switch those switches back to where they needed to be switched to. So there's this whole kind of medical science rhetoric around it, but there's also total crapshoot, which is in the end, I ended up being given, you know, antidepressants, then they didn't work, anti-psychotics, they didn't work, yeah. then anti-anxiety drugs, they didn't work. Like, just like, I tried anti-everything, right? Yeah. And and the the sense of just being a total guinea pig. <laughs> like, I, I, am I in a random controls trial now? Is this happening? <laughs> Have I been gone through a certain door? And yeah, definitely, definitely. Very common experience. Yeah. So in terms of my experiences with psych drugs, so... I had I had the really simple positive experience in my teens and then I had the really train wreck complicated experience in my 20s. And then these days I pretty much I don't see them as an option for me. Mm. I'm one of those people whatever percent it is who who you know I, the, the cons outweigh the pros. Having said that having had both of those experiences when it, when it did help and when it didn't help I can I can see I can see why we I can see why we have them. I can see why we prescribe them. I can see why at different points in your life they can be life-saving or mm. or life changing enough to help you do the other shit you yeah. gotta do. But so my my first time around experience was what I call the simple story of asking for help, which was the one we hear about on all those bus ad campaigns, which is just ask for help, get help, feel better. So I did. I, I was having these really intrusive thoughts. And when I was 18, I thought I was just uh, basically losing my mind or like evil because I was having all these like oh, quite yeah. horrible thoughts. Yeah. Um, and so when the psychiatrist said, no, it's just switches getting stuck in your brain, I was like, thank fuck. I thought I was possessed. <laughs> um, and so they gave me the antidepressants, the antidepressants pretty much did the trick after I tried a couple. The first got some really weird and woolly side effects, but the second really, really did do the yeah. thing I came for. The end, end of that story was within about a year, I was quite a lot fatter and quite a lot number, and I didn't particularly like either of those things. And so in the end, that became the impetus to stop taking them, but it, but it certainly helped when I had them. The second time around at 23... All hell broke loose in my brain um, after a really bad experience smoking weed once. Um, and I basically just, uh, I, every day was a fucking ordeal yeah. um, for about two years. And um, that's when you and I met, Karen. <laughs> I but remember it well. <laughs> you remember it well. But that uh, period was was when I tried all the, all the antis, all the, you know, antidepressants, anti-anxiety, antipsychotics, et cetera, and really found... Uh, not only no help, but eventually pieced together that the drugs themselves, I had this, this, this realization that I was taking one particular drug three times a day and like clockwork three times a day, I was also having these like brain melty uh, kind of, I don't even know how to describe them, just, just like my whole brain was like, had become a carbonated substance. Um, and that was happening three three times a day. Uh, I want the brand name of that one. That sounds kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> In a very kind of disturbing way, yeah. because at that point in my life, I was so attuned to any weirdness in my brain that I'd, I'd almost become like this, you know, my own my own clinician in terms of just watching myself for signs mm. of further deterioration. So, so for me, those experiences were just signs I was getting even worse. And it was only like 
after about a year of taking that drug that I finally put two and two together and realized, oh, that's happening 30 minutes after each pill. Mm. And so I remember going to the psychiatrist and saying, hey, I think there's a connection here. And he was like, oh, yeah, that's one of the side effects. And I was like, why didn't you tell me yeah. that? And his yeah, classic response was, well, I figured if I told you the side effects, you'd, you'd experience them. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Holy moly. So all of which is kind of a bit of a download and I didn't quite mean to give all that information. But what I, what I, what I wanted to set up here is that obviously we've got a bit of a problem, right? Because these aren't just our stories. We've got a bit of a problem with how we talk about meds. Yeah, and interestingly, you're, you're kind of starter for 10 on this, like how to have more honest conversations sort of hits the nail on the head. Because mm. for me, if it was honest... I'm feeling I was I was saying this to Honor just yesterday. If it was honest, you would arrive at wherever you sought help, and the first thing they would say is welcome. Then the second thing yeah. they would say, looks like you're having a tough time. And the third thing they would say is, and we have no idea why. <laughs> However, we have got some options that for whatever reasons seem to work. We don't know why either. Mm. But we can definitely give you a, an array of options that includes medication and all the other good stuff that we want to do. But we don't know why it'll work or if it'll work. Yeah. But here's here's what we're going to try. And when you're ready to find some meaning in all of this, we'll be here too. Wow. And that's the honest thing. <sighs> yeah. That's the, like, it's just the humility of it, eh? And, and I think, I mean, you've spoken about this in the past. It can't be done in the system we've got because the stakes are so high. The portrayal mm. has to be, don't, you know, we've got this. We've got the solution. Yeah. Yeah. I want to take everything you just said and like embroider it on a pillow or something. <laughs> like it just, <laughs> fucking hell. What was it? So like, ha first of all, yeah. welcome. Welcome. <laughs> welcome. Like welcome. Just not even like... Patient number six, please. Just welcome, yeah. you know, yes. and then, um, you know, looks like you're having a tough time. And then the third thing is like, we've no idea why. Because, I mean, you speak to this so elegantly through lots of things, like to get over the hurdle of asking for help mm. puts you in a disempowered position. You're already in this place of like yuck. Yeah. And... Yeah, you need to be empowered. You don't need to go somewhere where it's where it's basically snake oil, you know. Yeah. And I want to I want to put my disclaimer in. Like I would totally use psych meds again, without mm. a, without a heartbeat. I am not all. Mm. I'm not about suffering, you know. Mm. If it got to a point where I felt antidepressants or antipsychotics or a mood stabilizer would give me a better quality of life, I would include it in the options of things I'd like to do. Yeah. I would just do it really consciously this time. I just wouldn't be like, oh, and you you have a white coat, so you must know what's happening here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it is, I will say, it's a scary place to get to to realise the drugs don't help you. Mm. Because then when it, when, it, when it gets hard again, as it has for me, multiple times since that early 20s roller coaster it's just not an option yeah and i'd be really curious to, to how you've got there so firmly <laughs> um 
I think he, I think he is part of it. So, so that's a, re- that's a really interesting question. So I think it's probably useful to share a bit of how I did dig myself out of that hole. Yeah. And I say dig myself, really, it was a group effort. What, what I discovered is that I wasn't just swallowing a pill. I was swallowing a whole way of seeing myself, which was as a problem to be fixed. Mm. So every time I'd take one of those pills was, was one little reminder to myself that this big scary stuff was a, was something to be pushed down and suppressed. Mm. And my, at that time, my way of getting through that was to actually go completely the opposite way. So, so I had all sorts of things happening at that time. I had some really fruity kind of altered state stuff coming on and on and off for a while. But the main most like debilitating thing was just pure terror 24 seven for months. And every day there was one more thing out of my rapidly shrinking comfort zone. There was, it was one more thing every day that I couldn't do the way I used to. Yeah. Like I couldn't go to the supermarket anymore. I couldn't drive on the motorway anymore. I couldn't drive at all anymore. And, you know, I kept taking these pills and trying to white knuckle my way through this scary stuff and it wasn't helping. You know, it might help day to day, but 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 week to week things were still getting yeah. smaller and smaller. So... For me, the realization moment came. There was one thing that I could still do. One thing that was, to most people would seem quite scary that I could still do, which was get on stage and perform <laughs> music. Because I was a musician professionally yeah. and I could, I could get up in front of, you know, played to thousands of people. And, and you'd think that would be the thing that would be like, well, you can't do that anymore. That's too terrifying. But yet, and yet that was the one thing that was constant. It was kind of my refuge was mm. the stage. And one night after a particularly good show, I had a realization, which is that it's not that I don't feel freaked out on stage. It's that you're supposed to feel freaked out on stage. Yeah. yeah. And that freaked outness has a, has a purpose, which is to, to give you enough nervous energy to get up and do something weird like perform to strangers. And it has a payoff which is that if you do the thing, mm. if you get on stage and do the scary thing, afterwards you feel fucking awesome. Mm. And I know you know this yeah. guy because you are a performer as well. So that was a real light bulb. And I had this thought after a particularly good show where I was like, well, what if I took that same approach to the rest of my life? I, I, I see you in the supermarket with an electric guitar. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, what, it was pretty much that minus the guitar, which was the scariest thing was going to the supermarket yeah. at the time. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go to the supermarket. I'm going to not take a pill beforehand. Yeah. And I'm going to I'm going to go. And, and the key was just like on stage, you can't just get through it. If you go on stage mm. just trying to get through it, you're going to be all self-conscious. You're going to play a shit show. I had to go to the supermarket and say, this is what I said to myself, I'm going to have the best supermarket trip anyone's ever had in the history of supermarket trips. <laughs> Which obviously was total bullshit, right? Like yeah. I was just, I didn't believe myself for a second. But when I did it and I, and I you know, got, I, I, I went and I, I did the, the shopping and I got home it was terrifying as it always would be. And yet when I got home, I put my groceries down and I had this little moment 
of just joy. Yeah. I had this feeling in my chest just released and I felt like, oh, I'm onto something. Yeah. And it was that same thing. It was that, I call it the personal alchemy of, you know, when, it, when it's a show, you take fear and you turn it into joy and, and expression. Yeah. And, I, and it was like I found, this, I found a way to do the same thing at a, at a bloody supermarket. So that was kind of the – so coming back to this, this is a really long-winded answer to your question, which is why I'm so firm in saying I don't think psych drugs are for me. I think, I think that's it. I think it's because for me there was this real moment of just flashing insight that for me, when it comes to my big feels, I have to lean into them. Yeah. When I try and suppress them, I get in trouble – yeah, and I th- yeah, I mean, I'm I'm totally with you, definitely. And, and and sitting here, even even in a post lockdown environment, like it's still winter here, and the the island I'm on in New Zealand has actual winters, and yeah, the winter blues are strong, and I'm using this as a a great opportunity to to roll around in my own misery and distress. But I guess <laughs> I guess I guess if I needed a way to even create the circumstance in which I felt I could do a shopping trip and it'd be the best shopping trip ever, then that that's when I would go, okay, so now it's a conscious thing. I'd be like, right, it's worth being a bit fat and numb for a little while to enable me to, you know, to, to do exactly what you're saying. And I think, you know, I mean, obviously, like, site companies would love to hear that, site med companies, because that, that's the whole thing. It's like, take it for a while and yeah. get shit together. I think yeah, the yeah. difference maybe for, for some people, and I don't know what percentage I put it at, but I've got this kind of theory that if the mainstream mental health system with psychiatric medication is going to work, and we'd have to define the word work, it's probably going to do it in about mm. two years. Yeah. You get to year three, four, five, and it's like, okay, at some point you've really got to get to grips with what's going on here because our sticking plasters keep falling off. The challenge we've got is the mental health system doesn't say that as well. They just go, well, let's try a different drug, a different treatment. Let's put you back on CBT. Let's put you back on DBT. Have you tried yoga? It just kind of, you know, it just keeps going relentlessly rather going, well, that's as good as we get, guys. So what else can we do here? You know, and how do we help you sit with the pure terror of feeling like you've reached the end of the options? Well, yeah, and I think I think it's, that's got to be upstream. If we're talking about honest conversation about meds, we've got to stop selling this idea that medicine is literally a panacea. Mm. That's the problem. You walk into a doctor's, you want a transaction. You paid your money. You want your drugs. Like oh, yeah. they're under immense pressure. Like I really feel, particularly for GPs, less less so perhaps for psychs who should know better. But for GPs, you got ten minutes with somebody in deep distress, and all you know you've got is a prescription pad. That's all you've got, and that's their expectation. Yeah, the the GP thing is 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 such a hard thing. I've had some really honest conversations with GPs where I still. <laughs> You still feel deflated afterwards because I've had that mm. conversation many times since, which is, okay, you've, you've done the DAS again. You're severely depressed still. Um, what are we into? You know, five years in a row of, of DAS scores saying you're severely depressed. Um, but you know and I know that the one thing I can offer you 
you you don't want. And <laughs> so no one, no one's saying that an honest conversation is an easy one. Have you have we talked before about um, Joanna Moncrief? No, it doesn't ring a bell. Come across her work. Yeah, so she's uh, she's another Brit. Um, she is a psychiatrist in the UK. And she has a really nice frame. This is about 10 years old now. She's been talking about this for a while. When it comes to psych drugs, she says that the main thing we need, because again, like you and like, like me, we're both saying, there's not, we're not saying there's anything wrong with the tool. Mm. It's an imperfect tool. We'll definitely mm. say that. But, but, but in the right setting and conditions, we'll take any imperfect tool we can get. Well, even in a crapshoot, you've got some chance of winning, right? 100%. So what she says is that what needs to change is how we, and particularly how clinicians, talk to patients about psych drugs. Mm. And so she says, how about this? Instead of, you know, the usual extremely scientifically dicey story we tell, which is you have a chemical imbalance in your brain and this pill will fix mm. it. Instead of that, how about this? She says... Here's a drug, just like a any psychoactive drug, any recreational drug. This drug will put your brain in an altered state. Mm. Now, you may or may not prefer the altered state it puts you in to what's happening right now. Mm. And that is your choice. Mm. So here are some options. Here are the types of altered states they tend to bring about, although that can be different from person to person from time to time. So try them. And you tell me, mm. do you like it better or not? Mm. Sounds lovely. <laughs> it's so simple, eh? Yeah. You know, and, and this might be the same lady. I, just when you were talking there, there is a, it is a lady, she's a psychiatrist from the UK. And I heard her speak on something many years ago that essentially what psych drugs are doing is sort of babysitting your brain until you move mm. through whatever you're moving through. Yep. So, you know, my diagnosis is bipolar. So, you know, we've got this kind of cycling sort of experience of life. And particularly there, because you've got to calibrate. So, like, yeah, I definitely, definitely antidepressants pushed me too hard and pushed me to mania and got me hospitalized. Like, so I would definitely mm. use antidepressants very, very carefully. And antipsychotics did it the other way around, you know? So you kind of got to calibrate yourself a little. But when I heard it, she's like, basically, you're sort of babysitting because those cycles are going to happen. And what you're really doing is, is is sort of just rounding off the edges while it goes on. Yeah. And that's a very different tone to you have a chemical imbalance and this will fix that. Yes. So anything that kind of... It is hard, though, eh, because you've got to work with the person in front of his expectations. Absolutely. Because <laughs> the thing me and Honor were saying is this is all well and good, but if you arrive at a GP's A&E, an inpatient, or you get sectioned in a cell, if you're sitting there with, and now I get the good stuff because I've crossed the line and I'm in the mental health system that will give me mental health, then that's, a, that's, that's like might be sort of two decades of saturation in ideas that aren't real. Yes, and that's that, as I say, that kind of terror of feeling like the options don't work mm. for you or, you know, there aren't the options you hoped there'd be. And this is where we differ from just about any other medical realm. Mm. You know, I know there's a lot of debate in, in heart medicine, but, you know, you will find a pill that will bring your blood pressure down. 
Whether you can live with the side effects yeah. or not is a different question, but you, it yeah. will work. Yeah. Same for statins, mm. same for a lot of medicine. We will find you an antihistamine that will stop your face exploding. Yeah, exactly. Whereas in mental health, it can just be such a crapshoot, like we're saying. Even a pill that did work for you once might not work for you all the time. Uh, that's why when I think about what I want from mental health professionals, it's... I think it's as much it's as much a kind of attitude, and I've and I've said this in different settings and a bunch, which is you know you you need someone in your life when you're having a hard time who's who's not trying to fix you. You need one person who's not trying to fix you, and that applies here really clearly. Yeah. Which is it's not here's a pill because it will fix you. It's here's a tool. Here's an imperfect tool. And gosh, don't I also know the desperate feeling of wanting it to be the perfect tool? Yeah. It's funny. I'm very aware that our audience, um, for our audience, this discussion, this, this honest discussion about psych drugs might feel kind of unusual just because you don't really hear it. <laughs> um, you and I have both worked in mental health for a number of years, Gareth, and in the mental health system, this kind of honest discussion about psych drugs, about how they sometimes work and they sometimes don't, I think there's sometimes quite a lot of fear about this kind of discussion in the system. Like there's plenty of doctors and nurses and psychologists and even psychiatrists with firsthand experience of taking these pills. Um, I know this because they email us, but they're not allowed to talk about it most of the time, which feels like a real wasted resource. I think the fear is the fear in the system of people being you know, honest about their, their firsthand experience. The fear is that we'll have a very black and white view from having been through it. So like the fear is you'll either be rah-rah psych drugs or because they worked for you or you'll be hell no psych drugs because they mm. didn't work for you. But the fact is, I don't know, I, I, I've met very few people. If, you, if you've actually been through it, you know it's just, it's just bloody complicated. I think if you've got past a bit, because there will be millions of people out there who went to the doctor saying I'm feeling crap and we're giving an antipsychotic and possibly a little bit of talk therapy if that was an option and turned it around mm. and just got back on with their lives. Yeah. And and I celebrate them. I yes. part envy them, not whole envy them because I really like the richness of this crazy journey, but it's <laughs> like they have a place too. It's like, great, awesome, you found a way. You, let's, let's you know, let's really celebrate that. But what do we do for the, and I think it'd be quite a large number who don't have a very straightforward experience. That's, that's the bit that I'm really... You know, they'll have horrible side effects and they'll have, you know, distress and trauma and, and hard times with it. I'm not saying it's a simple path. I don't think you can really compare pain. But for, for, for us, it's like, well, we've run out of options now. What else is there? And often, you know, my experience of being involved with big fields for the last wee while and, and my own work is often people arrive and go, why have I not heard this before? Mm. Why did I have to wait four years and dig around in obscure little parts of the internet before I found somebody who said something that just seems so true for me? Yes. And the thing, the thing we hear so much through Big Feels is you guys are real but hopeful. Because mm. so often the conversation is one or the other. Yeah. It's either, it's either uh, honest and fucking depressing <laughs> yeah. or it's, um, you know, hopeful but... Uh, that optimism starts to look a little bit to wear a bit thin after a few years of, of doing all the things you're supposed to do and, and still not feeling better. So 
We do try and walk that path in the middle. And I think what it brings is a kind of nuanced view of the real, but but still the 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 hope, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely. I want to, there's one other thing I want to say in terms of the how it could be different. Mm. Because the, the elephant in the room here is compulsory um, medication. Yes. So <laughs> <laughs> I had the luxury because I had a private psychiatrist and because mm-hmm. I didn't present as crazy as I was. Oh yeah, good work. I had the <laughs> yeah right. I had a real, that's a real skill that I learned from my childhood. Hide your feelings. Um, the 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 uh, fact was the luxury I had was that I could say to my psychiatrist, "I ain't taking these pills no more," and there were no consequences yeah, to that. Yeah, yeah. He didn't help me with it. He wasn't like, oh, "Okay, well, here's how to you know come off and blah blah." blah. Yeah. He wasn't you know he wasn't he wasn't on board. Yeah. But I could be honest. So, so I want to talk about you know the, the other side of the honesty. Yeah. On the one hand, I want clinicians to be more honest with the people they're supporting. Yeah. That Joanna Moncrief stuff about hey, this isn't a fix for some supposed imbalance, but it might make you feel better. But on the other hand, we need more spaces where we can be honest with mental health workers about meds without there being consequences. Because the fact is, if you're in the public system that's a lot less likely you're going to have that experience because for so many mental health clinicians in this public system we've built so much of their role now has become about distributing meds and checking if you're still taking them at the expense of spaces where you can talk openly and honestly about whether they're still working for you right now or not, or, you know, what the trade-offs are. Um, So if like me, you reach a point where you do want to try coming off them to see what that's like if you can't be honest about that with your mental health professionals guess what you just stop being honest <laughs> so you stop in the meds anyway but you don't tell anyone yeah. that's not a better outcome we do have a lot of clinicians who listen to this show and who read the big fields newsletters so i do just want to honor I just want to honor that if you're in one of those cl- mm. clinical roles, it's fucking hard to 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 bring all that nuance mm. that you personally will want to bring because structurally you're in this position where, as I say, you're obligated to um, to reinforce the the take your meds kind of um, ethos that 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 we're swimming in, even if you personally can see the cracks in that story. So one one on the one hand honoring that, but on the other hand also kind of just putting the call out that structurally we need that change that says that there's at least one person yeah. who you can be honest with about your meds yeah. without consequences. I would go further. Go on. I think you're right. If, we, if we're looking at reforming things, and clearly in, in Victoria, you know, we are, you definitely want to build that in. But I think it's equally as important that we have something outside of whatever we call the system, however we define it, that you also have that option. Because what yeah. I see a lack of that was certainly felt more present to me at the start of my journey and certainly in, in the years in New Zealand, you know, maybe a wee while ago, is lots of mm. options outside of a, a clinical, medical, biomedical, whatever world where you could go along and go, you know, this is what's real for me. 
And those yeah. those options seem to have been downgraded, discontinued, disestablished. Health health has stopped funding them because they're not health. Can you give some examples? Yeah, I mean, I just just went and did a whole creative songwriting um, two day workshop under the Mad Pride banner. And sure, it's about Mad Pride and it's about creative and it's about music and all the rest. But what you get is a space. And you get people sharing about what's real for them and whether that's, you know, you know, the over-medication they're experiencing so they can't feel too creative or whether that's challenges with hospitalization or challenges in the world, housing, employment, relationships. Like, we don't differentiate. And what's nice is we shared it all in such a joyful, celebratory way. This was not bleak. This was not in the, you know, this was... And it wasn't really hope. It was just that place of real. It's like, here we are. This is our mm-hmm. lives. And, you know, and I guess because you've got that focus of sharing it through the arts, it's not, you know, yeah. You, you just got a different way of telling your story that isn't about your deficits. Yes, yes, yes. The sense of like at least a space where it's not all about fixing. Yeah. Or just a place to be with what you're going through. Exactly. When I started this work 14 or 15 years ago, it was funded by health. It's now applications to the lottery fund and we have to take gambling money that, you know, guilt money. Guilt money, yeah. That's the difference. When I started, health was like, yes, this is a legitimate part, not because it's about health, but it has health benefits. Hmm. It moves the the society forward and it it addresses inclusion and exclusion rather than symptoms and management. And health had a role to play in that. And we've lost sight of that. Like that's all become, it's, it's, It'd be great if it went somewhere else, but it hasn't. It's just been like, oh, sorry, this isn't our task anymore. We don't do this. Mm. Mm. So things like big feels, and I do see others like big anxiety and everything seems to be big. <laughs> <laughs> like they are filling that space, but they're doing so on the proverbial oily rag. Oh, God, yeah. You know? Yeah. And, I, you know, people have asked me a lot over the years in reform situations, you know, what should we do? And I'm like, well, if I had a million dollars, I'd give it to Big Feels or something similar <laughs> to tell a different story, allow people to know that, you know, if it hasn't worked or it's had a limited impact, that's not your fault. Hmm. That's the limitation of what we've got for you right now. So when it, even with the compulsory treatment, which is where we started this little segment, yep. I have mixed views, as you can imagine, having experienced it. Yeah. But I know when you know, the six big guys all kind of congregated around me to pin me down and inject me, they were out of options too. Yeah. They didn't want to do that. They had to go home and go, I had to push a fella down and, you know, brutalise someone. That's not nice for them, Mm. Mm. you know? And they haven't even got the justification that, you know, perhaps maybe police or army have got of like, well, they're the bad guy, so I'm the good guy. They're like, I was trying to help him and the best I could do was hold him on the floor while we injected him. Whew. you know, that's, 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 mm. that's a system out of options. <laughs> and here's the rub. They still did the right thing for me. As horrible as it was, I don't, I can't imagine what else they could have done. Yeah. And, you know, very quickly I made me at peace with it. It's like, you're just people with a job. Yeah. Just in this, this horrible context where, yeah, there's nothing else you could do. There's nothing else I can do. We've reached the edge of what this society can can hold. Woo. 
<laughs> There's always a point in our conversations, Gareth, where I'm just like, I think what we're saying here is it's fucking complicated. Good God. I mean, you know, a lot of what we're saying here is, is structural stuff that we all just bear the brunt mm. of, including those mental health workers who, in certain settings, just don't have any better tools to offer us. But meanwhile, fuck, let's keep doing what we can to change that, shall we? Your gotcha. Yes, yes, yes. All right. Thank you, Gareth. Uh, that was our quite, I'm going to say, deep dive into <laughs> various aspects <laughs> of the Mets conversation. Hope it was you. Uh, you'll see us again here soon. Cheers. Okay, cool. <laughs>